today we are looking at chapter 27 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the doctrinal statement of the Presbyterian Church in America. It is a secondary document. It's not a primary document. The Bible and the Bible alone is the primary document which gives us our doctrinal foundation, but the Westminster Confession is a secondary document. And today, we're going to talk about the sacraments, and on the back of your handout is chapter 27 in both historic and modern text. I did that for your own benefit. If you wanted to uh, kind of, uh, one didn't make as good a sense as the other, you got somewhere to go. But I know that I grew up in a Baptist church in Tennessee and never heard the word sacrament. Uh, sacrament to me was something Roman Catholics did and Roman Catholics practiced. And I grew up in a church which taught ordinances, that the Lord's Supper and baptism are the two ordinances. And I'll make a distinction later between those two terms, sacrament and ordinance. But I kind of want to jump right in with both feet because we have eight points to get through, and we only have so much time, and I will be doing the next three Sundays, or the four Sunday school classes counting today. Uh, next week will be baptism, the week after that will be infant baptism, the week after that will be the Lord's Supper. I think I have those dates correct. Now with that said, what are sacraments? Well, the confession does not leave us in the dark. The sacraments are both two things, signs and seals of the gospel or the covenant of grace. What is the covenant of grace? Can anybody give me a brief to the point definition of what the covenant of grace is? Obviously, if it's a covenant of grace, it has something to do with grace, right? So what is the covenant of grace? Come on, don't be shy. Yes, it is a covenant, uh, a working out of the covenant of redemption. The covenant of works was given to Adam, and Adam, of course, failed because he sinned. And the covenant of grace is Christ replacing, being the second Adam, or the last man, comes and obeys the covenant of works on our behalf, and then uh, suffers the curses of the covenant upon the cross, and we are given freely, by grace, the gospel. And so sacraments, which we believe there are two, the Lord's Supper and Baptism, are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Signs and seals. So what does a sign do? Points. Points to something beyond itself, right? Uh, what does a seal do? Guarantees, authenticates, establishes. So we're going to talk about that, but I just basically am trying to give you elementary language. Now, the word sacrament is not in the Bible. Neither is the word ordinance. So neither one of these words are in the Bible. Ordinance comes from the fact that these two things are ordained by Christ or instituted by Christ. Sacrament comes from the Greek word mysterion, which means what? Mystery. It means mystery, and what does mystery mean? 
hidden. Something that has previously been hidden, but is now what? Revealed. It's an open secret. <laughs> it's exactly what a mystery is. It's an open secret. So sacraments are both sign and seals of the gospel or the covenant of grace. And we glean this information example from, uh, uh, for example, from the sacrament of circumcision in the old covenant. The sacrament of circumcision. It is called a sign in scripture because it was a seal of the righteousness that comes from God alone. Romans chapter 4, verse 11, gives us the language of sign and seals. The sacrament of circumcision was gracious, representing God's undeserved favor to sinners who believed in the Son of God. It was covenantal, cementing God's promises to his people. So sign and sealing terminology had a particular meaning in the post-Reformation period the period in which the Westminster Confession of Faith was written. Um, in the 17th century, seals were understood to be confirming tokens or authenticating symbols. When that meaning was applied to the sacrament, a seal was understood to protect a promise, emphasize an obligation, or solidify a covenant. Most basically, a seal validated something. We like that word. We hear that word all the time in our culture. But seals validated something. Signs carry a much wider range of possible meaning in the 17th century than seals did. Generally, a sign was a visible indicator or a tangible token of something else. A sign could have a symbolic reference to something that was not material or was in some way abstract. In any case, a sign was a visible action or a material object which symbolized something else. When applied to the sacraments, signs were understood to be emblems or badges that established one's identity. A sign in this sense could indicate that the person marked belonged to God and was part of the church. Most basically, as we said earlier, signs pointed to something. Thankfully, the 17th century theologians did not take their contemporary meanings for signs and seals and impose them on the biblical words, and then inserted them into the confession. The very opposite is the case. The Westminster Assembly observed the biblical use and context of these words and then drew conclusions about their meanings. Actually, biblical meanings of sign and seal appear to be well represented in 17th century usages, for in biblical usage, a sign is a distinguishing mark that points to something which exists, and a seal confirms or authenticates the genuineness of that thing. These early modern meanings were likely informed by the Bible, the most widely read known text in English history. Now, secondly, sacraments are given by God. It is clear from the inspired writings of Moses, Matthew, and Paul that the sacramental signs and seals of the Old and New Testament were given directly by God. We see this when the great covenant was made which Abraham... Uh, with Abraham, and when the Great Commission was given to the apostles, and when our Lord on the night of his betrayal instituted a new sacrament for his disciples. The sacraments were given by God, 
Who better than God could and who other than God should institute emblems for each of the four purposes mentioned in this opening paragraph of the confession? Now, I'm not going to read the confession because it takes too much time, but let me talk about the four functions of sacraments. That is, when I'm talking about sacraments, keep this in mind, I'm talking about the Lord's Supper and baptism. First, sacraments were first instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits. They point above all else to the Savior and to the blessings which flow from a living, vital relationship with him. One New Testament sacrament is called a participation in the body and blood of Christ. It proclaims Christ. Sacraments point to Christ, the mediator, and his saving work. They confirm the genuineness of the biblical testimony and the benefits that come to us under the terms of God's gracious covenant. Secondly, the sacraments confirm our interest in our Redeemer. They fortify or give authority, God's authority to, our interest in Christ. And when the divines use the word interest, it means our share in or our title to something or someone. Sacraments signify or point to our relationship with Jesus, and they seal or confirm that we belong to him by God's great grace. That is why the New Testament represents Christians in the act of participating in a sacrament as having put on Christ. Third, the sacraments put a visible difference between those that belong to the church and the rest of the world. The Lord made it clear to the people he was saving from Egypt that when a new family began to move in Israelite circles, the head of that family was supposed to demonstrate his commitment to the Lord by having himself and all of his, uh, all the males of his household circumcised. We see hints of this teaching much earlier uh, in the second generation after Abraham, but we see it most clearly in our Lord Jesus Christ, who, were circ- who was circumcised, not only to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, but to show God's truthfulness to those around him. It was a testimony that set him apart. Sacraments signify or point to this difference. They seal it or confirm it before the watching world. Fourth, Sacraments solemnly engage us to the service of God according to his word. Surely, serious battle against sin and for Christ is the dual message of the sacramental imagery used in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Perhaps there's also a double meaning in the idea of participating in Christ, both union with him and commitment to him. In any case, the sacraments signify or point to the need for devoted service. They seal or confirm the word of God that calls us to this service, and they remind us that we cannot have it both ways. Our commitment is either to Christ or to the devil, but not to both. Amen. All right? Now, let's talk about the sacramental union. And here's where the differences begin to come more clearly in this concept of the sacramental union. To say that the sacrament signs, seal, and represents something or someone is to say that in every sacrament, a spiritual relation or a sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. 
In fact, sometimes scriptures speak about the sacraments and salvation. Occasionally, the names and effects of one are attributed to the other. In the Old Testament, God actually calls the sign of circumcision itself my covenant. In the New Testament, the cup of wine is called the blood of the covenant. The Apostle Paul, perhaps speaking of baptism, refers to the washing of regeneration in Titus 3.5. And Peter says that baptism saves you. Now the Church of Christ, I love that verse. But often the Bible will attribute to the sacrament the reality of what it represents. And so don't be confused by that. But let's talk a little bit more about this, and uh, there's a whole lot more I could say. But there is confusion about the sacraments that takes place. According to Catholicism, the sacramental union is strictly physical. As Ursinus put it in his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, the Catholics imagine that the signs which are used in the celebration of the Lord's Supper are changed into the things signified. But a change is no union. This means that the error of Catholicism is to see the grace given in the sacrament as something done in us by virtue of the change of the sign into the thing signified. This also explains the use of Aristotelian categories such as substance and accidents. I'm not going to get into this. too complicated. But anyway, they say, they believe, that the sacraments physically become what they represent in us. The Lutherans, on the other hand, say the sacramental union is local, as if the sign and the thing signified were present in the same space. So both believers and unbelievers receive the full sacrament when they receive the sign. Thirdly, according to most American evangelicals who are strongly influenced by three things, pietism, anabaptism, and radical Zwinglianism, there is no sacramental union at all. They're just bare signs. The signs remain mere signs or symbols that do not communicate to us grace in any way. They're given to us merely to commemorate the work of Christ through the use of the symbols. That's why they call the um, Lord's Supper and Baptism ordinances because they are not means of grace. They do not channel in any way the grace of God to us, but rather they simply help us commemorate and remember. They're real strong. Having been a Baptist pastor for 13 years, I can tell you that I used to say that the uh, point of the Lord's Supper was to remember Christ's broken body, his death for us. And the word remember, I would say often, is more than just thinking about it a second. It is going back and reliving the event and placing myself there. Now, that's not wrong. It's just not enough. We believe the sacraments actually do something in you. And so according to Reformed theology, the sacramental union is a spiritual bond. I'm running out of room here. Oh, this ex operare operatio is the Roman Catholic view that in the working works, which means taking the sacrament actually creates the physical thing in you. When you eat uh, the bread, you're eating 
the real body of Christ. When you drink the cup, you are drinking the real blood of Christ. Okay? Now, what was I talking about? The, the Reformed view, what we believe. Thank you. <laughs> it's just so wonderful to know somebody's listening that closely. Thank you. According to the Reformed, the sacramental union is a spiritual bond. Affected by God the Holy Spirit. Reformed always makes a huge to-do about how the sacraments are Trinitarian. And that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is involved in our participation in the sacraments. As we come in faith, the Holy Spirit works to give us the grace represented in the sacrament as we come in faith. So, let's talk a little bit more about this. It is effected by God the Holy Spirit. People talk about the efficacy of the sacraments. That's sort of a word you never hear anywhere else but in theology. What does efficacy mean? Pardon? Uh, that's part of it. Right. You know what the simplest definition of that is? I wrote it down because it just slapped me between the eyes. It says that it is the ability to get the job done. <laughs> That's what sacraments do. So anyway, a spiritual bond affected by God the Holy Spirit and received by faith so that receiving the sign, bread, water, and wine, the thing signified is also received the promises of the covenant, forgiveness of sins, and participation in the resurrection life of Christ. Where the sacrament is received in faith, the grace of God accompanies it. And according to this view, the external sign becomes a means employed by the Holy Spirit in the communication of divine grace. That is why we move from a monthly celebration of the Lord's Supper to a weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's because we really believe they do something to you. Praise God. You see. And why would you not want that? I mean, we, we all know we need the Word of God preached to us, that that feeds our souls, it nourishes us, it makes us uncomfortable, it convicts us, it draws us to the Father. But we also need the grace that comes to us in the sacraments. Amen. And then some person will wise up and say, well, why don't you do it every day? Jesus said, as oft as you do it, do it how? In remembrance of me. But we do it weekly. Now, uh, according to... Eugene Osterhaven, who's uh, Dutch Reform, sacraments are not bare signs, but are described as real means of grace with which the Holy Spirit nourishes believers. Signs and seals of God's promise of salvation, they are made effective by God's Spirit who quickens and nourishes those within the covenant community who are united to Christ. Michael Horton reminds us, that while the Holy Spirit does not work apart from means, that is, word and sacrament, he nevertheless works when and where he will through them and is never tied to them. Never can the sacraments be the property of the priest or even the laity or a magical tool to command God to do something. According to John chapter 3, verse 8, regarding to the Holy Spirit, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. 
So the Holy Spirit is free to use the word and sacraments to save, but he's also free to withhold his gift of faith from whoever he pleases. And so the sacramental union uh, enables us to state the close connection between the sign and the thing signified. Now, where are we? We are now uh, at grace exhibited on your outline. The first paragraph of chapter 27 tells us that the sacraments have a representing, confirming, differentiating, and engaging functions. The second paragraph mentions that there is a sacramental union of sorts between the sign and what or whom it signifies. The third paragraph opens by stating that grace is exhibited, that is presented and conferred in or by the sacraments. The grace that is presented or conferred is the saving grace of the gospel. And the Westminster Assembly states that this presentation or conferral happens when the sacraments are rightly used. What does it mean about sacraments being rightly used or administered? So happy you ask, because I'm going to tell you. Here it comes. On the one hand, um, since sacraments are wrongly used when they are wrongly understood, the Westminster Assembly begins by issuing some key limitations to the idea of presented or conferred grace. In the first, it states the case negatively and later positively. On the one hand, no grace is conferred by any power in the sacrament itself. After all, Peter and Paul both note Christians are not created by water, removing dirt from the body in the new covenant, or Jews by the outward and physical act of the circumcision in the old covenant. On the other hand, if it's not the action or the material of the sacrament that saves, neither does its efficacy depend on the piety and intention of the persons administering the sacrament. The assembly appears to have drawn negative conclusions about the piety and intention from two positive conclusions about the Holy Spirit in the words of institution. First, any efficacy, or that is the sacrament getting the job done, in the sacrament depends on the work of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist pointed forward to the baptism of the Holy Spirit as the true power to which the crowd should look and which baptism merely symbolized. Paul pointed out that it is in one spirit that we are baptized and perhaps looking to the Lord's Supper says all were made to drink of the one spirit. The sacraments are constantly linked to the working and power of the Holy Spirit. Sacraments work by the Spirit, as Paul wrote to the Romans, speaking of circumcision in Romans 2, verse 29. Second, the Holy Spirit, in turn, uses the words of institution, the instruction which accompanies the sacraments. The word contains a precept authorizing the use of the sacrament. This we see in Matthew 26 and Matthew 28, clear instructions to partake of or to administer the sacraments. The word of institution is also contains a clear promise of benefit to worthy receivers. We see this too in the Gospel of Matthew. The wine symbolizing the blood of the covenant is poured out for the forgiveness of sins and baptism is to be joined with teaching as we see the wording of the Great Commission. The sacraments are the work of the Holy Spirit. 
by the institution of Christ, signifying and sealing God's promise and also his judgment. They are God's signs. For this reason, their usefulness does not rest on the holiness or the aims of those who administer them. Let's say that you were baptized as an infant in the Roman Catholic Church. Is your baptism valid? Did you say no? Oh, <laughs> I almost had a couple here going, yes, no, yes, no. No, they both said yes. Why is it valid? The efficacy of the sacrament does not rest upon the intentions or piety of the one who administers it. If he administers it with the words of institution in the name of the Trinity, it's a valid sacrament. Now, I know that some of you may have been baptized as a Roman Catholic and you got rebaptized. Well, we all do stuff like that, don't we? I was baptized twice in a Baptist church for salvation, and I don't know if I was saved either time. I do now, but I didn't. <laughs> I was just responding probably to the Holy Spirit walking across my heart. It's probably what was happening. Well, they wouldn't do it in the name of the Trinity. I probably would leave it to the person's conscience to determine whether or not uh, I would happily rebaptize someone from a cult because of what the cult teaches. I would do that. Okay, any other questions? I'm going to get to that. Uh-huh. I'm going to get to that. That's a good question. You're listening. Good. Um, so, the sacraments are the work of the Holy Spirit by the institution of Christ, signifying and sealing God's promises and also his judgment. They are God's signs for this reason. Their usefulness does not rest on the holiness or the aims of the one who administers them. Now, nonetheless, it does matter who administers the sacrament. The Corinthians administered the supper to themselves, each person grabbing what they wanted, and Paul deemed that this was not the Lord's Supper at all. Everything is to be distributed decently and orderly, and the sacraments are dispensed by the leader of the congregation, properly administered. The teacher who gives the words of institution is the one commissioned to give the sacrament. I once uh, led a youth retreat, and we had, uh, well, I hate to tell you some of the stuff I did, uh, we had um, the sacrament with Pepsi and Fritos. Pepsi and Fritos was the sacrament. Wow. Yeah. That's right. And then another time, uh, the PCUSA had a real controversy over what the sacrament, what should be used in the sacrament. Anybody know what it was? They felt in response to the motherhood of God that we should use milk and honey. I think that went down in defeat, but there was a large contingent that supported that idea. Now, the Old Testament sacrament offers uh, potentially significant parallels for the New Covenant Church. Since the holy rites God commanded in the Old Covenant were committed only to those people whom God himself had appointed. People did not take these honors on themselves. They performed those special actions only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Uh, Saul got in trouble for doing the work of what? 
the priesthood, right? He slaughtered the animals, didn't wait for who to show up. Samuel. All right. If the sacraments are properly termed gospel mysteries, it may be that the New Testament teaches that the sacraments are for ministers to administer because the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, uh, first Corinthians, he says this. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, stewards of the mysteries of God. Mysterion, mystery. I wouldn't fall down on my sword for saying that the mysteries here represents the sacraments, but I also would not fall on my sword here and say they don't. They could include that. And so uh, that's just me being honest with you looking at that verse. I'm not sure that I could make that jump necessarily given the context. So how is that different from sacerdotalism? Well, what's sacerdotalism? <laughs> well, I have to know what you think of sacerdotalism before I answer that question. Ruling elders not serving? No. Uh, like the federal vision that the whole Doug Wilson group borders on, where your faith is in the sacrament and your faithfulness to it rather than in Christ, where. And basically, sacerdotalism is, is where the power is invested in the priest and kind of robs. <coughs> We're just talking about who does the words of uh, institution and administers the sacrament. That's all I'm talking about. I don't think I'm talking about sacerdotalism. But if I am, you help me understand how, because I don't think I'm talking about it. Um, there are, let me see. Oh, yes. Uh, Certainly, when considering the persons who should administer the sacrament, it's important to note that Jesus commissioned his chosen disciples to go into all the world with word and sacrament. It was a charge deliberately given to church teachers. Now, you can overplay that and you can underplay that. But I, I still believe that the one who is ordained to preach the gospel is the one who is to administer the sacrament. Now, two sacraments. Obviously, the Lord issued many commands during the time when he was established his church. But a search through the four Gospels, or even the Gospel broadly considered as the whole New Testament, turns up only two sacraments ordained by Christ. Only two signs are given, special significance, and are commanded not merely by example, but by precept, not once, but repeatedly. Only two signs and seals were subsequently understood by the first generation of Christians to be an enduring part of the life of the church, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. These signs were not merely local practices. Baptism, for example, was required of converts of all nations. The signs were not merely examples of the sort of symbols that Christians are permitted to invent for themselves. On the contrary, they're to be administered just as the Lord Jesus instructed. 
Without a doubt, the apostles considered the Lord's Supper to have been abused by the Corinthians, and they were rebuked by him precisely because they did not celebrate it as it was received from the Lord. What actually happened in Corinth? Anybody know? Well, they profaned the Lord's Supper, and Paul gave them severe warnings because the wealthy people were gathering together and having a, a feast and were not allowing the poor people to enter, and, and therefore the poor people who were starving, you know, it was basically a relational rebuke on how the church saw itself and functioned. It was not inclusive, but exclusive, and it dishonored the sacrament. Thus the warnings of Paul regarding the necessity of uh, unity in the body of Christ, and uh, that was a wrong message to send. There was more than that, but that was what was going on. Uh, now you asked the question about the sacraments and faith. Um, in the Lord's Supper, which is not which is perpetual, you do it more than once, baptism you do once, uh, it is an entry. The uh, Lord's Supper is continued. Uh, in the Lord's Supper, as we come in faith, everything we do in the Christian life is by faith. Everything we do is not relying upon ourselves, but looking outside of ourselves and trusting that the Holy Spirit is at work in us and empowering us to receive it. Now, when it comes to infant baptism, we do not believe that faith has to be present uh, to receive the benefits of the sacrament. Um, and we believe that that strongly indicates, it's one of the greatest testimonies to the church, that saving faith um, is a gift of God. Amen. And that... Even though the baby doesn't understand anything about what's going on, neither would you or neither would I unless the grace of God showed us. We're as helpless as that baby is to save ourselves. Amen. And I think that beautifully illustrates that. But I'll get into that more when I get to infant baptism and when I get to adult baptism, which will be next week. We will talk about baptism. Any other questions? So this is simply a preparatory chapter on the sacraments, that the sacraments of the Old Testament with respect to the uh, spiritual things. What are the two sacraments in the Old Testament that we believe are repeated in the New Covenant with essentially the same meaning? What are they? Circumcision and what? You only did circumcision once, thank God. And Passover was what? Repeated. At least a year. But they didn't always do it. But it was to be repeated. In the New Testament, they are replaced by baptism. Colossians 2, I, I don't know. It used to bother me even when I was a Baptist. When I would read that passage in Colossians and exegete that passage about how uh, we have been circumcised not with hands, but with the circumcision done of Christ, which refers to baptism. And to make that connection, once I made that connection, that troubled me greatly in my whole understanding of who should receive baptism. And so that was an enlightening moment, at least for me, 
because I am pretty much a guy that has to see some evidence of, of something in the text before I can do it with good conscience. But enough said on that. That's basically all I wanted to tell you today. Yeah. That's why it's called a mystery, which is a catch-all term that theologians use, which means you will never get to the bottom of it. It's too deep. We, we are the finite, finite trying to grasp the infinite. We are the creature trying to grasp the creator. We are the sinner trying to grasp the holy. And but for the Holy Spirit showing us, we won't see it. We won't understand it. And I do think you grow in your understanding of what the sacrament means. Amen. Yeah. Um, something that is wrong today as far as the sacrament of the blood. I've gathered it from the way you administer it. It's not only us coming to Christ, but it's church sort of. No, the, the question often comes, if, if both the preaching of the word and the administration of the Lord's Supper uh, uh, give us grace, are the, is it the same grace or is it different grace? Well, it's grace, but it signifies different things to us. And one of the things I have used that you just mentioned is what I call the kiss of the father uh, running to the prodigal son who did the world's worst job of repenting in the history of repentance. He basically was looking for a way to work his way into his father's favor by being a hired servant. That's not evangelical repentance. That's legal repentance. And the father didn't even listen to him. What did he do? He fell on his neck and smothered him with kisses. That's what happens to us as we come to the Lord's table. We are experiencing in a greater way the father's love. Um, so... I believe the grace given to us in the sacrament is distinguishable by what it does, what it promises to do. Any other questions? Well, one is a saving grace and one is a confirming grace. One saves and one confirms. Yeah. yeah. That's why I ask you to teach this class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. So why would one sacrament be denied to covenant children who are members of the church? Uh, because Paul says in Corinthians what? How do you eat it unworthily? I don't understand that, but that would seem to go against the function of the sacrament. No. Paul said in Corinthians you have to discern what? And the blood. I don't think an infant can do that. No, I'm not arguing that point. But because then you have members of the church who are not being distinguished by the sacrament. They have been distinguished by the sacrament of baptism. Right. That's my question. Uh, the Why Lord's Supper doesn't necessarily distinguish us in the same way baptism does. 
It's repeatable. Um, I promise you, some of the things that are rolling around in your head, we'll get to. This today was just simply to give you a sort of framework for understanding what a sac what we Presbyterians who subscribe to the Westminster Standards believe about uh, the sacraments. That's what I'm giving you because this is a Presbyterian church, so that's what I'm doing. And uh, for me, uh, you talked about understanding. Uh, when I was a little boy going to the Baptist church, I always dreaded the Lord's Supper. And the reason I did it because I dropped the tray one time, passing it. Or I, I took the tray and was handing it to the pastor's son. He reached out his hand and then jerked it back. And the tray fell. And all of a sudden I saw the sign that I never wanted to see. My father turned around, looked at me, and gave me one of these. Which meant, meant he beat me with the Bible all the way to the car for doing that. But now that I understand the sacraments, I am happy to do it, at least the Lord's Supper, every week. Anything else? They'll give us a greater opportunity to love on them and to uh, celebrate what we do have in common in Christ. If, if you believe the gospel, you have no reason to ever be anything but loving and accepting toward those in the community that differ. Um, and uh, I don't want to argue with anybody. Um, I tried to fight, pick a fight with everybody at seminary when I went to Reform Seminary over this subject. And the guys would simply say, as long as you look through the lenses of soteriology alone when you're looking at baptism, you're never going to see. you got to look through the lenses of covenant to see. Well, that didn't mean anything to me because I knew nothing about covenant theology. And so what I'm telling you is it is very hard for people who don't come out of a reform context and a Presbyterian context in their background to wrap their head around some of what's being said. And I understand that. And uh, the only way I think I ever understood it was by grace. So how can I say I'm better than anyone? I'm not. Um, it's a gospel thing. And i got to go get ready to preach. It's Easter. <laughs> so let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this time together to think about this. And this is not an easy topic or subject. It's very complicated. But we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you that today we celebrate him as risen and um, all the implications of that. Now, Lord, we pray that you will prepare our hearts as we come together to give you worship, and we pray in Christ's name, amen.